at this point of seeing the dissolution of whatever we are observing and also recognizing that there isn't <clears throat> any ownership of any of that, we come to a point which is called disenchantment, the next step on the transcendental dependent arising. And if we hang in there a little longer, we might even get as far as enlightenment. Here we come to disenchantment. Disenchantment means that the world with all its um, sense pleasures is no longer considered to be our playground. We have become disenchanted with all the various things that we used to try and probably are still trying. The uh, disenchantment is not due to any logical conclusion because that's not very difficult. All we have to do is contemplate how impermanent all is and uh, how we've all tried it before and how it never worked out properly and how it couldn't possibly be the right thing. We can contemplate and logically assure ourselves that that is so. That doesn't work. It may help us to get over a difficult situation, but it still makes the craving arise. Craving is a condition which is so bound up with our being that it takes a fair bit of insight to make any dent in it. Never mind getting rid of it. But making the dent in it comes from the personal experience which I have outlined this morning of the constant falling apart of all that we know and by the same token of the seventh jhana where we find nothing at all that we can latch on to. At the time of having seen that, we also see that our sense consciousness, feeling, perception and mental formation is just arising and ceasing and that there's nobody in there that's controlling it. So there's no owner. And having seen that for oneself with clarity, then it's possible to realize that whatever it is that attracts our attention in the world is not worth the effort to go after it. Because it's of the same non-substance as everything else that we have seen. It doesn't have an inherent essence and is constantly falling apart. Whether it's that a person or whether that's a bird or a rainbow or a tree, whether that's an experience or whether it's a sensation, whatever it may be, an idea, none of that has any solidity nor does it have any permanence. 
And as we see that quite clearly, because at this stage in the maturing of the spiritual path, one of the three characteristics has to arise spontaneously, either impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, or the substancelessness. Whichever one we are most inclined to, the one that interests us most. That what interests us most is always the best subject to inquire into. So as we have one of those arise spontaneously, nothing in the world can grab us. Of course, that has a result of equanimity. At this point, the even-mindedness is assured because the person is watching with objectivity and is no longer caught in that what is mine and that what should be mine and that what one would like to be mine none of that because it is seen for what it is transparent there comes a time also in the meditation when this is quite clearly seen and the person is seen as well the word transparent doesn't quite describe it it isn't as if one can look through one but the solidity the compactness of the person is seen as an illusion it's no longer the reality at this point in time it appears as if this compactness and solidity that we all represent is real seems very real doesn't it especially when there are painful feelings very real very solid but in meditation having put one's attention on that constant falling apart that kind of illusion may most likely will disappear for the for that meditative uh, moment and there is an appearance in the mind which sees this person quite differently as just elements that have come together as just parts of mind that have come together no different from anything else that has materiality or mentality and the solidity is seen as nothing else except the earth element which is also not of one piece but has the dissolution as its character and therefore appears to be as if it is shut through with holes now we don't get actual holes but it has that feeling as if there isn't this compact solid me anymore because a mind has put its attention on something opposed to that the other way around to see things as they really are now when that happens everything is seen in that context so that nothing can have that enchanting quality anymore enchanting and therefore desirable and therefore shot through with craving and clinging 
and therefore having a great deal of dukkha in it. The craving and the clinging are always followed by dukkha. In fact, they are dukkha. Craving itself is already dukkha because it's wanting something one hasn't got. And the clinging, of course, is dukkha because we know already that we can't keep it. The disenchantment does not mean indifference. On the contrary, it is supported by the desire for liberation, which is much more creative and far a far greater impact on the mind than any kind of other desire that we could possibly have. The desires that we usually have are so material and worldly that they leave a stale taste in the mouth after having had them or even while still desiring them but certainly after having had them but this desire elevates the mind and as it elevates the mind there's a feeling of having at least partially transcended the materiality which engulfs us because of the body that we have. We can't fully escape it as long as we have the body. And that's why this uh, wording is also used, Nibbana, for the enlightenment state in this life, and Parinibbana at death, which means Nibbana without a remainder body remainder is gone the body is our constant reminder that we are in this materiality but if we give into it all the time and give way to it and let it dominate us with its wishes and with its desires that it needs to be looked after then we'll never be able to transcend. When we have the desire for liberation, that's already a transcending of that level where we just want to be satisfied with our material wishes. So that's a much more refined desire. And it only arises in full force when disenchantment has set in when all the other things that one has always wanted and usually got are seen in their right perspective they're very nice for children to play with but they're nothing for mature people and that's what spiritual path is all about the maturing of the mind and the maturing of the mind has absolutely nothing to do with age it could sometimes, but it's not a um, necessity. So this, all that, what the world contains, all the playthings that are there, 
which are of various forms and colors, of various shapes and tastes, of various smells, of all sorts, consisting of all sorts of things, all of it is seen as toys. And if we want to play with toys, why not? But as long as we know they're toys. The trouble is with playing with toys is that the mind becomes interested in the toys and eventually it might actually stay in that situation of playing with toys. And that's why we need one of the injunctions of the Buddha, namely guarding the senses. When we have come to the point where we realize that we are not going to get satisfaction out of our sensual desires, and haven't become enlightened yet. Because then it's quite easy, of course, when somebody's enlightened, they don't have to try so hard. But when we haven't become enlightened yet, we have to guard the senses. Because the senses are constantly latching on to all those toys that are everywhere and saying, look, this is really something this time. And I haven't had that one yet. And this one looks a little different. It's probably much better. So there's a constant display in the world of these many different things which when the senses are open to all of them, we will eventually be tempted to follow them. Even though we may have already seen that everything falls apart, that there's no owner, and yet not having had an enlightenment experience, the temptation, the danger is always there. So guarding the senses is one of the support systems so that we don't run around looking for something to please us, so that we don't put our mind in fantasy where we could have some gratification, but try to keep it on that which will help us to continue on the path. This is a very important step on the path, because the next one will definitely lead us to the enlightenment experience. But getting to that next step, that may be the difficulty, because right here, the disenchantment may only be a mental understanding, a logical conclusion. And even though we know that, particularly in the jhanas, we have something far better than what the world offers, the mind is tricky enough to say, well, let's have both. That's even better, isn't it? Hmm? It's also a logical conclusion and uh, not so difficult to arrive at. So then, having both, time and energy are divided. And time and energy being divided, again, it won't work. There are 37 factors of enlightenment. Now, they become factors of enlightenment when they have been perfected. They are factors which all of us have within us 
which are faculties at the time of practice. They are factors of enlightenment when they have been uh, completely cultivated. And four of these faculties factors, are called the four roads to power, the idi pada. Pada is a path, idi is a power, four pathways to power. And the first one is the concentration of effort. Now the concentration of effort means that we're making one-pointed effort, which means that we know where our effort really should be. Should it be in getting the worldly sensual gratification? Should it be on the worldly level? Or should our effort be concentrated so that there is eventually a complete liberation and freedom? Effort is the kind of strength we put behind that what we do. Now we can do things without making effort and they look like it too afterwards. They are not satisfactory to anybody. They do not bring that what one may have set out to do. Effort is one of the factors on the Noble Eightfold Path. Right effort. It's called in Pali Sama, which means right. Sama Vayama, right effort. We have to know where to put our effort. And when we concentrate our effort, now as we do, for instance, in, or hopefully do in a meditation course, we concentrate our effort on the spiritual path, we have results. No doubt about it. Everybody has some, whatever it may be. If we concentrate our efforts, because at this time, we don't dissipate it. We don't think, well, I could have this and that. I could do this and that. I could, because there aren't that many opportunities. We are actually protected from that kind of dissipation of effort. The minute we set our foot in the world again, in the real world that people call it, this must be unreal then, we are no longer protected. We can dissipate it in anywhere. We can go traveling, we can uh, uh, watch television, we can start a new relationship, we can uh, go shopping, Oh, that's a very popular one. <laughs> Anything at all, we can dissipate our efforts. And as we do those things, in the back of the mind, just having come from the course, of course we have this, well, this is only momentary, I'll, I'll get right back to it again. I'll get right back to the practice. But that's not the way it works, unfortunately. Unless the mind stays really with what it has seen through inside. The habit of the mind, it's much easier to slide downhill. Can you imagine how difficult it is to climb a mountain and how easy it is to sit on your backside and just slide down? It's much easier. So the dissipation of effort 
It's the easiest thing in the world to do. And the justifications that we have are so manifold. Everybody's mind can figure out so many excuses. I've got to do that one first and then I will. Or this one is really necessary and this one no end to excuses. We have justifications for practically everything we do unless we have had enough insight to see that these justifications are nothing else except that the mind is trying to find an escape route. An escape route from really making the concentrated effort. And yet, they are called the pathways to power. Power over oneself. Because without them, there is no way we're going to be liberated. And as I said before, that's the only reason for meditation. All other reasons are just fantasy. That is the only reason for meditation, to become liberated. And the second one of those pathways to power is energy. Now, if we have made the right kind of effort, and the right kind of effort does not mean that we are expecting results. It just means that we are one-pointed. The concentration of effort is one-pointed effort, and concentration of energy is one-pointed energy. Energy is mental energy, and it appears again and again in the uh, factors of enlightenment, because without mental energy, we don't have a hope. We've got to be able to have enough mental energy to recognize where we are going with the mind. See, if the mind is foggy, drowsy, tired, uh, disinterested, indifferent, uh, just wishing to be uh, comfortable, it doesn't have any energy. The jhanas are the energy producers. Four and eight are the energy, great energy producers, particularly eight, but four also. So the mental energy <clears throat> has to be again concentrated into one direction. This particular point on the pathway is one where we fall off the easiest. And that's the one that hurts the most. Because as I said once before, if one climbs a ladder and one goes up one rung and falls down, nothing happens. It's just nothing. You don't even feel it. But if you have climbed up, already eight rungs, and then fall down. You could break a leg. And it's quite spectacular, falling off the top of a ladder. So this is actually the point where we have to be most careful. We have already gained insight. We know lots of things already. We have experienced them already. We realize the world isn't offering anything. And that is the moment where we think we're safe, we're not, not at all. That's the moment when the energy and the effort have to be really brought about to continue on the pathway in a one-pointed fashion. That's the moment when we are also easily tempted to think, although we know and only know that we have already reached a plateau where none of these 
sensual desires can hurt us anymore and that's not the truth at this point we haven't reached any plateau we are still totally in the realm of samsara the realm of birth and death the realm of the sense consciousness arising feeling perception and reaction constant circle so this particular point is dangerous because we have already seen something which is totally different from what we used to see and yet aren't quite able yet to follow it if we then stop and follow our sensual desires it's a disaster an absolute disaster because we know better and we are then in a feeling of real uh, better so this is a point where we really have to be very careful be careful with our whole day-to-day life that's where the care has to be taken so that we do not fall into the same sensual desires that we've always have had in the past they may say they'll still arise because there's no enlightenment experience they will still arise but we can guard ourselves against them first of all through our own insights but also by being far more careful about our contacts where we go and what we do the less we go out with the senses the less the desire will arise it is not a suppression the suppression of the sense desires doesn't work at all it is an understanding that their gratification is not going to help us the other two pathways to power are the concentration of the inquiry now that is the concentration of the introspection of the inquiry into oneself and that must never cease particularly at this point at this point on the path it is of the utmost importance to have the mindfulness to have that recognition of one's own mental states and the recognition of one's own emotional states now we've discussed all that already and here at this point it becomes again of even greater importance because now we have a clearer insight into them we can see them for what they are we don't own them and yet they bring us no end of trouble so we are going to be even more careful with the recognition of our mental states and emotional states the inquiry of course includes not only that the inquiry includes that again and again we bring up this inquiry into impermanence unsatisfactoriness and the substancelessness does it apply every time something arises within which makes some sort of impact on the mind we can't do it with every thought it's impossible 
We can't do it with every kind of feeling that arises. But anything that makes an impact, we can inquire. Is, is it true that it has those three characteristics? It's actually quite fascinating to do that. And if we do it properly, we'll find, yes, it's true. Everything has those three characteristics. But unfortunately, the mind forgets to make that inquiry. It gets lulled into believing, even though it knows better, that there must be something out there that one has missed. And now, being very much, much more, um, have more clarity in the mind and being far more meditative, one's going to find it out there. Again and again, that has to come up. Is it true that either all three or one of them is embedded in the experience that I'm having? The thought, the feeling, the sensation, whatever it may be. And as we do that, it becomes habitual. At this point, it has to become habitual that this arises in the mind. And it is no longer an inquiry at that time. It's an habitual reaction, which is, of course, bound up with mindfulness. This habitual reaction has to be bound up with mindfulness because if we don't pay attention, we'll never see it, whatever, whichever one of the three we have chosen to see. To see. The more mindfulness we have, which means being totally attentive to what there really is, the less we're going to be fooled by our senses because we're going to notice the sense contact and we're going to notice the feeling and we're going to notice the naming and the reaction of craving. We're going to notice every bit of that and the more we have the mindfulness in the mind, the less will that really tempt us and fool us into going after it. The disenchantment does not become complete until we have actually taken the next step, which I will explain tomorrow. But there's one more pathway. Now, the, the pathway of the concentration of inquiry is, of course, the concentration of insight. And the, the fourth one of those is called the concentration of consciousness, which is, of course, the calm, the tranquility. So again, what we're seeing here in those four, which are four of the 37 factors of enlightenment, is that the effort and the energy has to be pointed in the right direction. There are too many ways of dissipating them. And then it's con- always concerns the two calm and insight or tranquility and wisdom means the same thing so the concentration of consciousness means meditation and the concentration of the inquiry means insight and although these different words are being used for it and partly they are different words <coughs> it always boils down to exactly the same thing As we go this path, the mind becomes quieter, more reflective. It becomes more absorbed in itself 
it doesn't have to send out the senses in order to gain some sort of satisfaction. It knows through meditation it has satisfaction. It doesn't have to have another one because it is far more reflective on itself and it is far more contented. So it doesn't have to search for so many things that could give contentment. And all some of the old habits will fall off at that time. We all have habits which we have acquired over the years which have to do with our senses, including the thinking. So some of that will fall off automatically. Others we might just sort of leave behind deliberately. But if we are not on our guard, guarding the senses, we'll still be fooled. Because the mind can still say, yeah, that's quite all right, but something, the music, the painting, the dancing, the people, something must be very important. Now this doesn't mean that we, as I've said this before, I'll say it again, that we become indifferent, on the contrary. Because we have gained a great measure of equanimity, which is also a factor of enlightenment, we are able <coughs> to objectively regard whatever happens. And while the senses are still going to have their pleasure, we have that objectivity of knowing that the fulfillment doesn't lie there. And with this, with this equanimity, we can also be a great help to other people. Because equanimity is the one characteristic which makes it possible to overcome all difficulties. Equanimity is that characteristic, the Buddha said, which looks at the eight worldly dhammas totally equally. Now the eight worldly dhammas are praise and blame, loss and gain, fame and ill-fame, happiness and unhappiness. And absolute and real equanimity looks at all eight in con exactly the same way. Now, most people in the world would like four out of those eight and would not and have no um, intention of getting the other four. But everybody, 100% of people, get all eight. And yet, what we usually do with them is that we are delighted to have the first four and absolutely disgusted to get the other four. So with that delight and disgust, we're sitting on a seesaw, which is the exact opposite of being equanimous. And then when we go up in the air with the first four, which is the praise and the gain and the, the fame and the happiness, and that gets us up in the air, where it's extremely a tottery. We have to hang on because whatever has gone up has to come down again. And then we come down with a bang when the other four arrive. And we are disgusted with them. 
And living on that seesaw is the usual way that humanity lives. It's not only unsafe, it's extremely uncomfortable. Who wants to live on a seesaw? I mean, seesaws are for children to play in the park. And they also only do that for a few minutes and then they run off again. Nobody wants to live on that for their whole life. So equanimity, which arises out of our understanding what really is, is is made complete when we have those eight and each one is all right. Nothing is worse than another or better than another. Now that, of course, the completeness of equanimity makes it then a factor of enlightenment. But in the beginning, it is a faculty which we have. And as we have that faculty, we need to strengthen it. We need to strengthen it by protecting ourselves from those factors and those experiences which will tax it to the utmost where our desires take over and we can no longer have equanimity. It doesn't mean running away from everything. It just means being on guard. And as we do that and use the insight we have gained together, insight and guarding the senses, we should be able to pass this um, cliff here where we are in danger of falling off the path quite safely. This is a danger of falling off the path at a quite an advanced state where meditation and insight may have come together quite well through understanding and experience. And at that point, to fall off the path really um, brings such a difficulty to that person that does that that they probably find it extremely hard to find the path again. Because it's a real jolt to the psyche to fall off from a big height. So this disenchantment is not something that we can take for granted just because we have seen that everything disappears and falls apart and that the world doesn't have it what we want. We have to actually work at it to keep that going. And it is not indifferent. It is the insight into the impermanent nature which through our experiences shows us that there is nothing of significance anywhere to be found. And therefore our wish for liberation is the strongest thing that remains within us. That might be enough for this evening. We have questions. This is the time to ask them. Well, quite simple. If you like cake, don't go into a cake shop. (laughs) Or if you like cigarettes, don't go near a cigarette machine. Something? A bit broader than that. <laughs> a bit more practical. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but actually, it does boil down to that. 
it really boils down to that it really boils down to the fact that you guard the senses to the point where you well you don't fantasize about having whatever it is that you really desire if your mind starts fantasizing you're bound to get out go out and try and get it so that's one thing guard the mind that's also one of the senses guarding guarding the mind instead of having all these fantasies think about dhamma and that's probably the start of it but the other thing is also that in our society we have a display of goods and a display of goods which creates creates greed i mean that's what it's supposed to do i mean why are they fixing them up nice and have beautiful packages around them in all the different colors it's supposed to create craving so to get it and they've got stacks of things there everywhere where you're supposed to go and you can't get past it you've got to sort of look at it it's <laughs> <laughs> supposed to create that that in you so if you can possibly avoid that sort of thing it's um well i i always tell this story at this point um i went uh, for a walk in uh, in hamburg in one of the which is a very elegant shopping center absolutely gorgeous and uh, i was going together with a monk a monk from thailand and he has i think it might have been his first trip to uh, europe i don't know he didn't say but anyway he we were walking along there and he was looking here and he was looking there and then he said um, isn't it wonderful how many things there are that i don't need <laughs> thought that was great I, I never forgot it <laughs> so uh, I mean I, I, I don't think he's ever seen quite that many things before and um, he came from a forest monastery and uh, you know if you well like if you live here in this place I mean you, you not much that you can possibly you know sort of see or hear that you can desire but um, and if you stay in your own house and you just do the things that you need to do there aren't all that many things that you can desire if you know that you have certain desires which are always coming up over and over again then one guards that thought process which fantasizes about it and one guards one's eyes and ears what is they are also in um, involved against coming in contact so that the desire does not arise and if it does arise then one has to use sterner measures well i don't know that you would hate the world i mean you'd have to have a hate character to do that um at this point as in the practice which is far advanced the disenchantment would help you to realize that you're only protecting yourself from falling into the error of starting to play with toys again there's nothing nothing to hate i mean why should there be anything to hate i mean it's not the world is as it is there's nothing to hate about it but what it does to us it tempts us all the time because our senses are constantly working it tempts us and says um, uh, tells us if we just follow that one desire we'll be happy ever after and it just doesn't work <laughs>
And if we don't stop trying, we're going to be busy till the end of our lives. So it's not, the hate doesn't come in there, the dislike doesn't come in there, it just means a personal protection. Just like protecting oneself from unwholesome thinking. No, it's just, it's just protection. Protecting your senses, guarding your senses, protecting yourself against wanting. And it's not always, not always going to work, but it's certainly the way that the Buddha recommended. Yes. You know what? At mm. what point there in that process did you distinguish uh, aversion arising as, as distinguished from session? Well, I don't know that the two even come together there somehow or other, because you are protecting yourself from desiring something which you think is great. So why would there be aversion? I mean, you think this, whatever it is, uh, that you're uh, is something good. But why should I didn't say, well, this one isn't working, so I'll try something else. There's no aversion involved there. I mean, the thing itself you can't have aversion against. You can, you can have self-blame, yes. And that, of course, is uh, no. That we have already discussed many times now. But that's useless. Self-blame. Yes, Harry. Different from? Well, <laughs> yes, I, I... Oh, sure. Oh, yes, yes, I see what you mean. Of course it is. But it's far more difficult in the beginning. Because the mind is constantly going to object. It's going to say, oh, no, this little bit won't hurt. You know? So we'll have a little bit, and next time we have double little bit, then we have triple little bit, and so on. But then, at this stage, the mind understands much better. But again, this protection of the senses has to be there, because we still haven't gained a foothold on the uh, actual liberation experience. We've only had insight, and we've had calm, and which help us greatly. But it's an extremely, well, so it's equally important, of course. But this time it's done with more fervor. Yes. It's, uh, well, it's happiness and unhappiness. It's praise and blame, loss and gain, same and ill-same, happiness and unhappiness. It's not, uh, it's um, pain, physical pain. Yeah, well, everybody has a different pain threshold. But we have discussed that, how to deal with pain. Yes? Um, I may be um, a 
Well, if you have to do things which are helpful for other people, certainly that has to be done. But one has to, you see, there's mindfulness with clear comprehension. And mindfulness with clear comprehension um, means knowing and also assessing. I'll explain that in detail also. Um, So when it's helping other people or looking after or being responsible, of course one has to do that. Unfortunate. I have I have met such people, and they're usually quite distraught because they're not um, having that inner conviction. Uh, and inner peacefulness that tells them that they're doing the best thing they can. I have met such people and the ones I've met have all been distraught. None of them that I've met have been at at ease. So that's an unfortunate reaction to a necessity. Besides, you know, it's a fact that only those people can come and meditate who um, have the leisure and the money. It's quite a fact, isn't it? So, what to say about that? Must be karma, huh? What else can it be? So, I mean, this kind of uh, 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 thinking, we can go further and further. I mean, people who are uh, struggling to have enough uh, to eat, well, they haven't got time to come to a meditation course. Or sit in meditation at home. So, whatever level one has, you know, the opportunity to be at. That's why gratitude is so important. Yes. Yes. You're talking about meditation, no doubt. In the meditation. Yes. Okay. Right. If it is not a noise which is utterly loud, which is so loud that it's jarring, that is extremely difficult. But if it's just noises, ordinary noises, there are two ways of dealing with that. The first way is that you realize that the sound that is coming is a vibration. You know it's a vibration in the air and you take that vibration into you and vibrate with it. It's absolutely no disturbance. You just vibrate with it and and then when it's gone your vibration stops and you just carry on. That's one way. The other way is uh, highly recommended for mindfulness. Namely, that when you hear a sound that is sound only. You see, what you're hearing is, let's say, somebody's coughing, right? So, you've heard that. Now, actually the ear cannot hear cough. The ear can hear sound. So then the mind says, uh, gets an unpleasant feeling. And then the mind says, coughing. And then the mind says, 
Can't he get some cough drops? <laughs> Who's going to meditate here? So then, go back and then say, wait a minute, sound only. So then this person coughs again, sound only. Now obviously, that's not easy. But it is extremely helpful and very, very revealing and rewarding. Revealing in a sense that the eye and the ear, which are the most prominent senses we have besides the senses, can't do anything. The eye sees form and color, and the ear hears sound, that's all. And the mind makes up what it is. The mind says, ah, very pretty girl. But has it seen the eye? I haven't seen a pretty girl. The eye has seen the color and the shape, that's all. And then the mind says, pretty girl, you know, turns around, might turn around, has long hair, might turn around, be a boy. Maybe have completely wrong idea in the mind. Hmm? So then, as you notice that, with maybe two people coughing or two coughing twice, and you become aware of this, what the mind is doing, you can actually in everyday life also uh, apply that. We do not have to react to every sense contact. We can know the four steps of mind and we can use that in everyday life. So there's somebody saying something, so let them say it. Unless it's absolutely directed to ourselves and we've got to do something about it, let them say it. It has nothing to do with what, what's going on within. So that is um, a very, very important practice, sound only. And particularly, of course, in meditation, and particularly important if one should happen to live in a house or a flat or an area where there is a lot of noise and one would like to meditate. Because sound only is totally undisturbing. It doesn't disturb at all. And also, it brings that kind of inner confidence that one doesn't have to react to everything. One can stop. Right then and there. So try that. It's very, very interesting. Yes. Yes, you can have the touch only. Touch only, yes. And uh, as you have touch only, then you can't label it and uh, you can't, the feeling which arises, arises. It comes automatically. With the sound comes feeling. With the touch comes feeling. But you don't have to label it and you don't have to react to it. You don't have to say anything about it. Nothing. It's just sound or touch. It's very interesting to do that. And, you know, brings mindfulness. Yes. That's right. That's right. That's exactly where it sits. It's a little boy sitting in there, and that's called me. And it's looking out through the eyes and hearing through the ears. And uh, then if that doesn't get any nourishment from hearing and, and seeing, then it starts thinking. It's very busy, that me. <laughs> but what you need to do is you need to investigate whether you can actually find that uh, little thing sitting in there which is called me. Try and find it. 
when you hear a sound, see if you can find the meat. Getting from behind the eyes down to the knees is a very tedious and strenuous process. I wouldn't advise it. It's much better if you were right there and be in the sensation. Then it's sensation, first of all, it's sensation only, and it's not as strenuous, not as tedious. That's the problem you've been having, that, that separation, huh? Yeah, don't get in there, be it. Tell the little man that's sitting in there to go down to the knee. Let him wander down and sit inside the knee. Let him sit there and then notice what's going on there. And don't allow him to come back. Tell him to keep going. (laughs) 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 Yes. nice that you've seen the danger because it you know wherever one sees it it's, there is there is this real danger there if having gone well gone this far down the line doesn't necessarily mean that one has perfected the jhana don't misunderstand that what I'm explaining at this point in time is the inside part which is not necessarily bound up with the uh, calm part um, even just uh, watching the breath and, and being distracted, one can still gain insight. So it isn't necessarily bound up with the jhanas, but it is bound up, this, down, this far down the path is bound up with having gained some insight, having reached some disenchantment by seeing all the unnecessary desires and yet not being guarded enough to refrain from them. Well, that's a real danger, then. Yes. I don't think that makes any difference because if you're watching the rise and fall of the abdomen, the little boy that's sitting in there is watching the rise and fall of the abdomen. And if you haven't got a little boy that's watching it, the, the breath just comes and goes. I don't mean, it doesn't matter what you watch. Depends how far re- removed you are from what's actually happening. To close the gap. You know, closing the gap, that's the whole thing. Being it. Whatever it is, being it, and that's the real mindfulness, right? the real there. I don't think it matters where you are at. Anything else? Yes. Yeah. 
Oh, of course. You can't help it. Depends. Who knows? Yes. But you can't help but see beauty. There's no way that you can refrain from that. Because you see, the feeling that arises from seeing the sunrise is a good feeling. And because then the mind says sunrise and then says I like it. And as it says I like it, there's a danger. That's what we need to watch. if we know that that's great if we know that it isn't a real thing but uh, it applies equally to touch sensation there's no difference anything else yes Is it unpleasant? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not, but it's becoming disgusting. Because if I ignore it, eventually it goes right. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, you can do two things. You can try both. When you do the path-by-path uh, path sweep and come to that right eye and sweep out and do that from the top of the head down to the right eye five, six, seven times and see whether that helps at all, okay? And if it doesn't, the other thing you can do is you can keep both eyes open, not just one, because that is distracting, and look down and don't focus. Keep both open, but to look down so that you don't get the sight distraction. And then as you look down, don't focus on anything in particular. Just look, okay? Try both and see. That's right. Have you ever had that before? The right eye opens and... Yeah. And it opens all the way. <laughs> yeah. 
No, try what I'm saying, okay? Keep them both open, look down. But before you do that, do the part by part. Come down to the right eye and go out. Yeah, you can go as many as ten times. And if that doesn't do anything for you, then do the other, okay? Yes. Well, I'm very sorry to say that the Buddha said that actors uh, is not right livelihood. I'm sorry about that, but I can't tell you anything else. <laughs> he said, yes, I think advertisement, advertisement agencies are in the same category. They're breaking a precept. But actors are not right livelihood, the Buddha said because they are showing unreality and we are already living in such unreality all of us that we need to be shown reality and not unreality even more because then we are sort of uh, trying to find some escape route in that so he actually said this about actors I mean he didn't mention every livelihood that we have nowadays because in those days there were entirely different livelihoods. But this one he did mention, because actors were in those days also. I'm sorry, but... Well, if you can find a reason why the... why the... uh, that's what he said about actors doesn't hold true anymore well enough fair enough if you can find a reason I don't know if you know it that's fine (laughs) well go right ahead (laughs) go right ahead and think one up quite all right but uh, I'm afraid I cannot tell you anything other than what the the Buddha said about that it just so happened that this particular livelihood he singled out actually because he was asked about it was asked about it by someone who was an actor and actually this man came to the Buddha and said you know he said to the Buddha I've got a really good livelihood I make people laugh and cry and and uh, tell them stories and, uh, and they really like that and the Buddha said uh-uh. they tell themselves enough stories that's all I can tell you sorry he didn't say anything about other than actors yes well that's what he talked about at that time that's what he what he said. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Certainly applies to television.
Yeah, well, active one would assume are entertaining, but um, everybody's got to make up their own mind about that. But since the question was asked, all I can tell you is what the Buddha said. You probably wish you had not. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> No. Nobody said that. Nobody said that. The wild fantasy. Where did you hear that? What did she say? Ah, nonsense. Okay, I'll tell you the real story, okay? Yeah. Fantasy. Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin and his uh, attendant for 25 years, asked the Buddha once, uh, in a certain occasion, whether women could, women could achieve enlightenment. And the Buddha said, yes, certainly. No difference whether men or women. But what is said in the explanation of Buddhahood, which is not what the Buddha himself said, but in the explanation of Buddhahood, of which there are dozens of explanations, that the Buddha has to be a man, because he goes through an enormous difficulty. And you know, you can be reborn as a man, and have been reborn as a man so many times, what difference does it make what you this time? You've been a man and a woman hundreds and thousands of times. Some people even remember that they were a man last time and they're darn glad to be a woman this time. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's not women's lib, I can assure you. <laughs> Look into your heart and see whether any negative emotions like dislike or anger or upset, worry or fear craving, desire worry and restlessness anything at all that creates unhappiness a darkness. Let it all float away like black clouds in the sky. Look again into your heart and see the great spacious purity of it, filled with love and compassion, with warmth and care. Fill yourself with that and surround yourself, so that nothing unto it can touch you.
open the doors of your heart as wide as possible and let all the people who are assembled here enter into your heart partaking of the warmth and the care the love and the compassion that they will find there enjoying a home in your heart Now let your parents enter into your heart. Make them a comfortable home in the warmth and care of your heart. Now let those people who are near and dear to you, those you may be living with, find a really comfortable place in your heart, enjoying the warmth and the care that they find there. Now let all your friends enter. You may have to open the doors to your heart wider and enlarge the space where they can find love and compassion. Make them all at home there. Now let your acquaintances, your colleagues at work, your neighbors, your relations, all enter into your heart. Make them all comfortable. Make them all enjoy your love, your compassion.
Now let that person in whom you find difficult. Let him or her also enter and be soothed and embraced by the love and compassion that person can find in your heart. Now let the creatures of the forest that you may have seen or just heard about all enter into your heart. Small ones, as small as an ant. Big ones, medium-sized ones. Snakes and spiders, let them all enter. Now open your heart more and more, make it bigger and bigger, and let people from everywhere, wherever you can think of them, enter into your heart, finding a home of love and compassion, enjoying your gift, make the heart bigger and bigger until it's big enough to let all of humanity enter. And I'll make it so big that it can accommodate the sky, the stars, the moon, all entering into your heart. Experiencing your love, your compassion. attention on yourself and notice how much your love and compassion has grown by giving it away. The more you give it away, the more there is. Enjoy your heart full of love and compassion, the warmth of love, the care of compassion. Enjoy it. Be one with it. Find your home in it. Make it the mind's resting place.
may beings everywhere have love for each other. <laughs>